Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. In this episode, we're going to be discussing inflammatory bowel disease, also known as IBD. What is it? What are the common symptoms? And how can it be treated? My name is Zoya Mabutomogoditwa, and uh, I am joined today by Dr. Ishmael Mula. Good. Hello, doctor. Hi, Zoya. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks. How are you? Excellent. Thank, thank you, you so much for joining me. us. Oh, thank you for having me. I uh, really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. And I think we're looking forward to the conversation. And maybe to kickstart, doctor, uh, you know, to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. What does it entail? So I'm a medical gastroenterologist. My practice is based at Nedke Sunning Hill Hospital, Santon Johannesburg. I've been in practice for approximately eight years now. I qualified as a medical doctor at GCT in 2003. Subsequent to that, I did my physician training at the University of Witwatersrand, completing in 2010, followed by a gastroenterology subspeciality, which I completed in 2013. I spent approximately two years as a consultant in the department and then subsequently went to private practice full-time. And I've been in full-time private practice since. Okay. I suppose what I what I think I'm hearing is that we are in very safe and reliable hands. So, you flatter so, me. <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. A flattery is everything. So maybe just to, you know, go straight into the topic. What is, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease? So inflammatory bowel disease is an autoimmune condition, a group of autoimmune conditions of the small intestine and the colon, which are manifested by certain clinical presentations, diarrhea, weight loss, blood in the stool, mucus, which are chronic. They last for more than four to six weeks. So they are different from infections on the colon, and they are different from functional diseases of the colon, like irritable bowel syndrome. These diseases have an autoimmune basis, which means that the body produces antibodies and hormones, which causes dysregulation or non-regulation of the small intestine and the colon, Mm -hmm. causing ulceration and inflammation of the colon and the small intestine Mm -hmm. with consequent malabsorption, diarrhea, bleeding. Mm. So it's important to understand that this is a chronic disease, Mm. and it has impacts on the patient, not only on a day-to-day basis, but long-term side effects. And I think we'll unpack some of that impact, you know, as we, as we continue with the conversation. But, you know, one of the things you made mention of is, is that it it is different to a functional disease, uh, such as IBS. And I think for me, it's important to get that distinction. Because I'm sitting here, and I think I read IBD, but I heard IBS, which is a more regularly used term. Yes. So IBS is different. IBS is more common than IBD. And these are patients who often present with bloating, pain, chronic symptoms, but with the absence of blood in the stool, with the absence of weight loss, Mm. absence of symptoms at night, often worsened by stress often worsened by Mm. drugs, often worsened by anti-inflammatories, 
worsened by certain dietary issues. And patients wax and wane and can be associated with intermittent constipation and diarrhea. But pain is important. IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, is different. Mm. Patients feel as if no matter what they do, they keep having diarrhea. No matter how they change their diet, they keep having diarrhea. And the very telling two symptoms for me to help to differentiate that would be the presence of regular blood in the stool Mm. and chronic diarrhea. And I think those two things with associated weight loss. Mm. I think that those three things are really critical in trying to, on a basic level, to distinguish which one is which. Mm. I mean, this is very interesting for me, and I think what I'm hearing, Doctor, is that, you know, the one presents itself as as a chronic disease. Um, And, of course, you spoke to, you know, the diarrhea. So Mm. there is this kind of chronic diarrhea, um, and the other then differentiated. So let's let's talk about, you know, uh, male and female. And I imagine that... um, does it present itself differently, you know, in males and females? So the one unifying thing is that all the patients will have diarrhea or blood in the stool or both. Mm. And there'll be abnormality of stool consistency. Women can sometimes have worsening symptoms around the time of the menses. Mm-hmm. Sometimes women who've got severe weight loss associated with this will start losing muscle mass and consequently become amenorrheic, stop having their monthly cycle. Or alternatively, these cycles can become very irregular. Mm. So part of our evaluation for patients, especially a woman, especially when it's associated with pain, would be a gynecological evaluation at the same time of diagnosis. Often, to, it's Because remember, this often affects younger patients. Okay. Right. And because it's affecting younger patients, women are very concerned about issues such as fertility. They're concerned about anemia in relation to bleeding. And and these are some of the issues that are important. Hmm. It's so interesting when you make mention that this typically or often affects younger patients. I already mentally um, had kind of located this with, you know, the more elderly patients. So very interesting that, that, that this actually is more common amongst the younger age group. So if you look at irritable bowel, uh, inflammatory bowel disease and its two subgroup diseases, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, they generally, the majority of patients have an, a younger age of presentation. Mm. So in my practice and in the practices of my colleagues, we have a few patients that are truly pediatric patients that have presented under the age of 10, 12 years old. The majority of the patients that I've seen present between their teenage years and their late 20s. And then we have a smaller percentage that present in their 30s. And then we have a second smaller peak of incidence with de novo new presentations in their 50s and 60s, but that's less common. Okay. That group of patients that presents at an older age often presents with more acute symptoms. Mm. And the problem in that group of patients is the patients often are worried, do they have cancer? Because if you're losing weight 100%. and having a change in your bowel habit and seeing stool with blood in it and with mucus, everyone's... F- so, so it's important to understand that the age of presentation, it can be very varied, mm. but the maximal age of presentation is younger patients. Okay. And maybe because you've already spoken to, you know, how it presents itself, younger patients are predominantly kind of, you know, not being at risk, but but they they are the ones um, that we see this uh, common amongst. 
What are some of the symptoms that IBD sort of has? What are the common symptoms for IBD? I think that's the most important question we have today because that's what precipitates us to go and seek medical help as a patient. Yes, absolutely. And that's where the role of a general practitioner and a primary healthcare practitioner becomes so critical. Mm. So the big four or five things I think that patients must take heed of are the following. I think chronic diarrhea for more than four weeks is critical. Mm. Patients with blood in the stool is critical. Mm. Abnormal weight loss in the setting of those two previous things is important and chronic pain. Mm. And I think that if you meet any of those criteria, those are the patients that should probably be evaluated and referred on from their primary healthcare practitioner, be it their general practitioner or a physician assistant, a nursing sister, wherever they access their first point of care onto a gastroenterology service for an opinion. Okay, and, so so let me stop you there because yes, I just sir. I just want to backtrack and I'm thinking about somebody who's listening. Yes. So the first point of contact should be the GP. As a rule, yes. Okay. But some patients, and I see a number of these patients in my practice, come self-referred. So if you have these symptoms and the symptoms are ongoing or persisted and you phone my rooms and make an appointment, we'll give you an appointment. Okay. So I think it also depends on what the nature of the access to treatment is and referral patterns, etc. So in my experience in the context that I work in, many patients do access their first point of care through a general practitioner, mm. but obviously self-referral is important. I fail to admit one thing. The other thing that's important is that some a lot of patients with inflammatory bowel diseases have a family history, and it's estimated that 10% of patients have got a family history of inflammatory bowel disease, either a sibling or a parent or a cousin, and you do exhibit something called family clustering. Family clustering is where you may have in the in the great in a three generational sure. family you may have cousins or an aunt who have this disease. Sure. So sometimes it's important. The second thing that's happened in the Cyphergan context is that there's been a distinct there is a change in disease that's happened. These mm. were diseases that were historically associated with Caucasian patients. We are now seeing increasing numbers of black patients, mixed-race patients, people of Indian extraction coming with inflammatory bowel disease and Crohn's disease now. And that probably reflects a change in the demographics of society. Mm -hmm. It may be related then to environmental exposures. People are eating differently. Urbanized people eat the same no matter what Mm. they are, Mm. which might be quite different from what historically they may have eaten in a more traditional rural type setting. Mm. And so we will see this ongoing change in the demographics of inflammatory bowel disease going forward. Okay. I mean, I think those are important points about some of these changes that you've seen where historically, um, it was, it was seen amongst the more Caucasian uh, groups and how with some of these sort of changes, you know, we see, we see this presenting itself quite broadly, um, across the board. I, I do want to go back to something you spoke to earlier, doctor. Sure, sir. Uh, you made mention of, of Crohn's disease. You spoke about ulcerative colitis. Um, some big words coming at us then. Maybe just to unpack that a little bit. What are they? What's the difference between the two? So, I think that's the other important thing. Inflammatory bowel disease is not one disease. It's two diseases. Some people would say it's three diseases. 
but it's but but in broad terms, it's two diseases. You get a disease called Crohn's disease, and you get a cousin disease, so to speak, called ulcerative colitis. Crohn's disease is a disease of ulceration, deep-seated ulceration in the colon, mm-hmm. with the presence of disease and. And it can affect the entire GIT system. It can affect the esophagus and the stomach less commonly, the small intestine, and the colon itself. But the important thing is is that you get deep ulceration in the colon in a segmental pattern, meaning that you'll have disease Mm. that intersperse with areas of normal colon. Okay. And then disease and normal colon or small intestine. You use the word ulceration. Sorry, yeah. I just want to keep step in there. Sure. Again, I'm just mindful of of, of those who are listening to us yes. and we're having some technical terms come yes. at us. So you talk about a deep-seated ulceration. In, in, in kind of everyday speak, what are we saying there? What we are saying is that when I do a procedure called a colonoscopy, I would see an ulcer. I would see loss uh-huh. of the intestinal integrity and mucosa. Okay, so we'd see ulcers. Ulcers. We'd 100%. see ulcers. And when I do a colonoscopy or my colleagues do a colonoscopy, we would take samples called biopsies and send them off to the laboratory in order to get pathologists to give them the material to make a definitive diagnosis Mm. of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Now, ulcerative colitis is slightly different. Mm. It's a disease that's pretty much exclusive to the colon and the type of ulceration and the pattern of ulceration in the colon is different to that of Crohn's disease. But it must involve the rectum. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that often patients present with a slightly different presentation to Crohn's disease. Okay. The patients, because it's involving the rectum, they would complain of frequency or urgency mm. because the rectum is the last part of the colon. And so now imagine you had an inflamed rectum, you'd be running to the loo 50 times a day. Uh-huh. Crohn's disease may be slightly different because the patients have ulcers, so they often present they all have diarrhea, but often have more pain as a component. Ah. Okay. Okay. The other thing that's common to both diseases is that you get extra intestinal components to the disease, meaning disease that is not confined to the the colon. And the things that patients have would be anemia, Mm -hmm. because they could be losing blood. Mm. They would often be malnourished because they can't absorb. Mm. They would have joint pains and aches and maybe an arthritis. Entropathic arthritis, arthritis associated with disease in the intestine. Uh-huh. Right. And sometimes they could have other things like eye disease or liver disease, but those are rarer things. And those are things really in the realm of a specialist. Mm. So it's important whenever we assess a patient who's mm. diagnosed primarily with this, and maybe the point, maybe we have to think about, well, how do we come to that diagnosis? And so when patients present with those cardinal features that we spoke to, the weight loss, the Mm. diarrhea, the blood in the stool, the mucus, those patients require a colonoscopy. Okay. So a colonoscopy is a procedure that is done under sedation Mm -hmm. where a camera, a flexible, high-definition camera is inserted via the back passage, via the anus, Mm. and we go all the way around the colon Mm -hmm. in order to assess and find out what is the cause that's actually causing this. Mm. And as I alluded to earlier, 
we, if there are areas of abnormality, I would take biopsy fragments, specimens, send it mm. off to the laboratory, and then the laboratory would then give me a report. And then in conjunction with what I saw under the camera mm. with what is seen by the pathologist under the microscope, then we could come to a definitive diagnosis of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Okay. I mean, I think this is important. So as I was listening to you take us through the distinction between the three, but also how they're connected, um, I started to think about, so so how, you know, is, is the treatment different? And I'm assuming it is just listening to you talk here. So if we're talking IBD, you know, can IBD be treated? And if so, how so? One of the gratifying things about being a gastroenterologist in 2022 is that the treatment options in the last 35 years have exploded. Mm. So if you have to go back to the 1980s where this start, where, where much more research was starting to be done on these diseases, mm. there was one drug available. And as our understanding of human science develops, mm. more and more drugs come to market. So we can target the treatment of where patients are and improve their quality of life going forward. And I think that's where we where we are now. Hmm. So if you look at what's happened in the last 30 years, we've gone from having two drugs available to a myriad of drugs. 100%. And how we tailor the treatment for each patient can be it's 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 out there now. Hmm. And that ultimately results in one thing, hmm. improved patient well-being. I mean, I think about about some of the advancements that we have made. And I think for me, really, I, I look at the advancements in the medical field um, and I see more and more that it is about saying, how do we continue to make, you know, the experience for the patient uh, better? How do we ensure that as we treat the patient, we're really addressing the issue? Um, you know, at hand. And I think for me, it's wonderful to hear about how medical advances continue to take us in the direction where we can pinpoint very specifically what the issue is and treat that. Um, this is exciting to hear. I think as, as I move on in the conversation, for me, I'm, I'm sitting, I'm listening, I'm going, so I've gotten the diagnosis. I have a clear sense of what treatment is, is, is required based on what has been diagnosed. How soon after treatment is initiated can one expect a response? That's an excellent question. So once you've got a diagnosis of IBD, what happens? Maybe let's reframe the question. 100%, yeah, what happens? So I think the first thing I do in my practice, and I think a lot of my colleagues have a similar type of practice, is the first thing that we do is we have to bring a patient back, counsel the patient about their diagnosis and the implications thereof. And we can explore that because I think that's an important part of disease. Mm. Being What to do once you're told you have a diagnosis. Ooh. That's often the, and that conversation, that very first conversation is often the most critical conversation a patient has. Mm. I generally ask the patient to come with a family member, a spouse, a parent, a child, so that two, two heads are better than one. 100%. Things can get lost in translation. Then we start patients on initial first line therapy which is a combination generally of five ASA compounds. What we then do is we let the patients, we start them on treatment, mm. and we bring them back in about a month, two weeks to a month, and we see what their response to treatment is. 
And we should start seeing some sort of response to treatment within a two and six week period. If a patient starts settling down, then we do further consult and we look and we try and measure this in a simple but objective way. Mm. The number of stools the patient has. Sure. How many times a day are they going to the loo? Mm. Do they have urgency? Do they feel like they have to run to the loo? Because that's socially compromising. Mm. Imagine being in a meeting and you have to run out to the, to the bathroom in the middle. Imagine being shopping at the mall mm. or in the movies. Mm. Have they started picking up weight? Because often they've lost weight. So have they started picking up weight? Do their joints feel better? Mm. Do they have nighttime symptoms still? Mm. Or are they managing finally to sleep through the night so they don't feel sleep deprived? Mm. And then I try and do some sort of basic mental health care screen on the patient as well. Mm. Any patient who's been diagnosed with a chronic illness. Sure. Depression and anxiety is a real component of it. And I think we do try and get patients a psychological assistance if they require it. And that's why I think family... Support can be important for patients, especially younger patients Mm. and definitely in older patients with new diagnoses. I mean, just listening to you, I suppose I'm reevaluating in my own mind, um, you know, the impact of this um, and how some of the the effects of, of, of living with IBD can be quite debilitating. And so, and so I hear you talk about the support and I'll be honest, initially I thought, well, you know, how much support does one need? But I think unpacking it and really thinking about the day to day really kind of, you know, it hits home. Um, It makes it very real. So if you think about it, one of the failings of us as doctors is that we try and look at, we people of science. Mm. So we look at scientific outcomes. Mm. When I bring you back in six months' time, is the colon better? Is the ulceration better? Do your blood results look better? Mm. Are those such relevant things for patients? Not necessarily. Patients want to know. Can I have a normal quality of life? 100%. Can I go to a restaurant? Yeah. Do I have to consistently look for a bathroom? Sure. Will my sex life be affected? Mm. And these, I think, are the, can I have children? Is my fertility affected? Those, so, so somehow part of the job of me as a gastroenterologist is to marry my endpoints. Yes. With what a patient needs and a patient desires. And that's really critical. And you have to reach not a compromise, but your goals have to be aligned. Mm. And I think, doctor, that's critical because I step in and I don't have the technical knowledge. And whilst it's important to have the technical understanding of what's happening, I think for me, that marriage between understanding this is what's happening to my body, but also getting counsel around some of the psychological stress, I think that's built up as a result of the experience can be quite empowering. Very much so. And I think the word and the concept is patient-centered care. Mm. You know, historically, if you go back to our forefathers in medicine, the doctor told you what to do. Mm. I think we've moved beyond that in many aspects of the world. And now it's about patients taking ownership. And a lot of the drug companies I work with have excellent product support. They have nurse educators. Mm. They produce podcasts. They produce videos. There's literature available. There's Mm. academic literature. There's lay literature. We have societies. Like in South Africa, we have the SA Gastroenterological Society. Pre-COVID, we used to have a yearly patient meeting. Mm. And these are, I think, some of the things that are important for patients so that patients meet other patients. Patients can express what 
their concerns are. Mm. And then us as practitioners can become more aware of how we can assist patients and what affects them. Because ultimately, we treat the disease. Mm. They live with the disease. 100%. And so I suppose, I, I mean, it, it, it becomes important then, as you said, you know, that the patient takes a certain amount of responsibility in terms of, I think, educating themselves once they have gotten that diagnosis, very clear sense of, you know, what is happening. And then additional to that, to, to source, um, you know, the support I'm hearing you say that there is quite extensive support and, um, you know, one should be able to, to, to find means to access that. I want to go back to, to something you spoke to a little bit earlier. So as we were talking to, you know, how IBD manifests in terms of one's social life, um, you spoke to things like, you know, we spoke extensively around how it presents itself as that weight loss. And some of the things that you look out for once you start treatment is a little bit of weight gain. So I want to talk to things like, you know, the impact in terms of the weight, impact in terms of things like sex life, impact in terms of things like fertility for men and women. And maybe let's look at those three for now. So, yeah, so, so I think weight's important. Weight, first of all, it's about self-image and self-confidence. Who wants to be looking frail and haggard, mm. losing muscle mass? You feel as if you're always fatigued. Yeah. And I think that helps. And I think weight gain is important. Patients feel better about them. They can look in the mirror and recognize themselves as who they are and who they were. Mm. And I think that's quite important. Sex life is important. People need to have, you know, intimate enjoyment with their partners. And sex life is related to two things, physical mm. enjoyment mm. and fertility. One of the goals that we try to do very hard with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease is to prevent patients having operations. Operations for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are associated with reduced fertility. Sure. But if you can get patients' disease under control with medication, their fertility stays normal. Hmm. So I think that's also a game changer in terms of our understanding. Mm. The other thing also is that the way we medicate patients is important. As I, as a gastroenterologist, have to be aware of which drugs would potentially give fertility side effects. I, as a gastroenterologist, have to be aware of how could we potentially put an at a fetus at risk. Yeah. If a woman conceives, and I think these are some of the conversations that we have with many of my patients, mm. like I alluded to right in the beginning, this is a disease of young people. Mm. Then for men, sperm counts. Will the drugs that we give you affect that? Sure. Because we always think of fertility as a woman's disease mm. or woman's condition. Disease is not the right word, condition. It, mm. But if I tell you 30% of causes of infertility in couples are related to men, it's important. It's important. So I think that there's a, a – and these are some of the discussions that we have to have on a regular, regular basis. Mm. And I think if we don't have these discussions with our patients, it becomes difficult for us as gastroenterologists to give the patients, our patients, mm. the relevant advice. And I, and I think that going forward, I think the great thing that's happened in IBD is that the majority of patients mm. – will be able to live normal quality of lives mm. most of the time without flare-ups. Mm. 
without a very onerous drug regimen, meaning they won't have to take too many pills. 100%. You will always, in every healthcare condition, get patients who are problematic. In the sense, not that they're problematic as people, mm. but their disease is complex. Uh. And we have to try and identify those patients early. And to follow on with some of the things I think you've covered earlier, compliance is important and regular follow-up is important because that allows us to preempt problems, mm. to identify problems on an, on an early basis so that we can treat them expectantly. We can treat flare-ups of disease because mm. a patient may be completely stable for a long period of time. And sometimes we have to understand, well, why did that patient flare up now? Mm. And maybe, doctor, take us through that. What what would typically cause, you know, the flare-up? So, there's four or five things. Okay. The first one would be progression of disease. Disease is not static. How do you predict prog- progression of disease? Well, that's very difficult to predict. So, I think that's the first one. The second one is non-compliance. Yeah. Patients may have been compliant. Mm. Maybe there's a financial issue. Maybe there's a social issue. Maybe they've looked for healthcare in other places. Mm. And or like discussed. me, they get better and they go, ah, I'm fine. Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. And so they make the decision independently to take themselves off, off medication. And consequently, three months, six months, a year down the line, they flare up. And then they're struggling as to why. And then they come back and then we have to repeat a colonoscopy and we find the patient's got recurrence of disease or worsening of disease. Mm. The next thing is could be other drugs that you're given. Maybe you had a sore back and you took some anti-inflammatories because you had a sports injury. Maybe you had a bronchitis and you were given some antibiotics. Sure. And the effect of the antibiotics on the colon predisposed you or caused your flare. Maybe you were a woman and you were started on hormones, you were started on the pill, or you became pregnant, or you started breastfeeding, mm. or you became menopausal. And lastly, could you have had a new infection of the colon? Mm. And so these are the, and so, so the core, there are a lot of causes of flare ups. Mm. And I think that's why it's important consistency of care is critical. Yep. I recommend that my patients who are in remission, meaning that they're living a good life, no blood in the stool, no night symptoms, less than three stools a day, picked up weight, living a good, not feeling that they've got urgency all the time. Mm. I recommend that they come and see me twice a year on average. Okay. Okay. I think what happens is that the moment you shorten your interval or you don't seek access to care at least once a year, mm. I think things can go wrong and things are not detected. Something I haven't spoken about is that, unfortunately, inflammatory bowel disease is associated with colon cancer. Ooh. And it's really important that patients do come for colonoscopies on a yearly to two-yearly basis, depending upon the nature of their symptoms and whether they're in remission or not. Mm. And those are decisions that we make with our patients in order to assess what their colon cancer risk is. Mm. So for patients with ulcerative colitis, the risk for colon cancer once they've had the disease for eight years is approximately 1% a year, which doesn't sound like a lot. But Mm. if you have disease for 20 years, that means you have a 1 in 10 risk of getting a colon cancer. 
And that's why we have to monitor patients, follow up patients, assess patients. And and cancer is in some parts of society almost a swear word, you know. It's associated with death or suffering. They call it the big C. The big C. <laughs> and I think that that's something we have to try and work through and manage in a in a way. And I think, and I go back to what I said. Mm. Your first conversation with the patient, your first mm. once you have a diagnosis, these are some of the issues. In the first two or three visits with the patient, once they've had a diagnosis, mm. that have to be brought up. I mean, doctor, I think for me, you know, what's critical is just getting that correct diagnosis. Um, I think for me, this is huge because if I'm understanding you correctly, it could very well be that you've got IBD, right? But it presents, it presents, or, or, or there are certain symptoms that are similar to colon cancer. And so it could easily, you know, be misdiagnosed as it were. So it's important one to not go to Google. Um, so don't go to Google um, after you've experienced a couple of symptoms and get Google to diagnose you. I think what's important is to say, go to your GP or go to a gastroenterologist. Uh, the doctor has told us that you can just, you know, self-direct yourself to, 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 to a gastroenterologist to be able to get, uh, you know, the proper professional care uh, that's going to one, uh, diagnose, you know, what, what it is exactly that you've got and then follow that with recommendations of the relevant uh, treatment uh, that one should then, uh, you know, follow or commence. I think you've absolutely spot on. And, and, and I think that, like, we, I've seen a number of patients over the years where delays in diagnoses have ultimately been associated with poorer outcomes for these patients. Mm. They present late. They end up needing early surgery because if you've got a chronic inflammatory disease in mm. your colon, like Crohn's disease, you develop something called stricturing, scar tissue and narrowing of mm. the colon, causes an intestinal blockage. Sure. Then you need surgery. That That's a major problem. Mm. You end up with patients having colostomies, i.e. those are bags, because... The disease was so extensive, they had no control over their bowel. They were mm. losing weight. You had to cut out the disease segment. So these are some of the issues that we have faced over a long period of time. And, and, and these, I think, are some of the issues that going forward we will have to deal with as the evolution of an individual, of a patient's disease goes forward. Mm. Surgery is not failure. I want people to understand that. But surgery might be a reflection of severity of disease, how severe their disease was. Mm. I cannot make decisions independently. Mm. I think I, as a gastroenterologist, I have to work with the surgeon in case patients need referral for surgery. Okay. And that's a different topic because I think that's beyond the scope of this discussion. Mm. I also think that a dietitian is important to help with weight gain. Can we uh, alter diet to, to reduce flares, to help with weight gain, to make sure that patients um, have fewer accidents? Mm. And I think that ultimately, I think holistic care is what I think. I, I think that's the word I'm looking for, holistic care. Mm. And, that, and, and the players and the components of that holistic care are the patient, his or her primary physician, doctor, mm. the general practitioner, because often they'll go and see their GPs for other things. Mm. 
a dietitian, psychological support, and other specialists that may need to be seen. Mm. And so I think that these are some of the issues that we have to address. And for women, a gynecologist. For men, maybe a urologist. Mm -hmm. These are some of the issues that need to be uh, dealt with as they need to be dealt with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is, I mean, this has been an informative even, even for me. And, and I'm making linkages as well to, to slogans I've heard previously. Things like early detection saves lives. I don't know what that campaign was. Uh, but certainly I think, you know, we're, we're, we're encouraging, uh, people to, the minute you present with the symptoms that we've spoken to, that you don't delay, that you actually immediately go to somebody who can assist in terms of, uh, you know, uh, diagnosing what this is and giving you the correct diagnosis. And then additional to that, I mean, I'm loving this concept of holistic care. Um, at some point, I thought, yo, it feels like it's quite it's quite extensive and it feels like it just goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, but if you position this as kind of, you know, it's, it, this is what I am I'm, I'm suffering with, this is the disease I'm dealing with, and, and, and how do I put together some kind of holistic regiment uh, that I can follow that allows me to lead a certain quality of life, um, that allows me to, to enjoy life. And, uh, you know, also just manage the disease. I think, I think that's what I'm hearing here, that it's just about managing, um, this once it has been diagnosed. How do you then manage it, um, after you've, you've, you've undergone, uh, your treatment? So I think the take home points mm. for me are the following. Mm. And I think you've alluded to some of them. I think symptom recognition, blood, weight loss, frequency of stool, Fatigue in mm. a young patient mm. or even an older patient. Access to a gastroenterologist for a colonoscopy so that an adequate diagnosis can be made. Mm. So we are not dealing with another GIT condition, a colon cancer, diverticular disease. Two, if the patient was had an, a colonoscopy done by a surgeon instead of a gastroenterologist, that's fine. Mm. Referral to a gastroenterologist for initial treatment, monitoring and follow-up. The fact that there is a universe of drugs out there that has been shown over the last 30 years to improve patients' quality of life mm. so they can live normal lives without worrying about where the bathroom is. Sure. And the embarrassment or fear associated with accidents mm. at the movies, in the workplace, in the home environment. And the last thing is the concept of continuity and follow-up of care. Mm. You may not like the first person you see. That's okay. Go find somebody else. That's okay. That's fine. But it's important that there is, that patients do access care on a regular basis, and then what to do in case of a flare-up and who to contact in case of a potential emergency. Mm. And I think those are the the backbones and the underpinning of how we treat all patients with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. And I think once a pair, but the critical issue is diagnostics. Mm. Without knowing what we're dealing with, how are you going to know how to go forward? Mm. It's very uncharted mm. and scary. Mm. So, so maybe for me as a final question, sure, uh, final question for me is, do I ever get to the point where 
I, I have a sort of full control of this. I have a very clear sense of how I can take care of myself. Um, do I ever get to a point where I can say, thank you, Dr. Dr. Mula. Uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm now in a position where I can, I can take full ownership, um, of my health and my health care uh, as it relates to IBD. I think that some things I haven't mentioned. For patients with ulcerative colitis, 50 to 60% of patients have mild disease. They're well with intermittent flare-ups. And I find that those patients, once you give them a little bit of information, a little bit of empowerment, knowledge, literature, I give my patients professional lay literature that's written at about a grade 10, grade 12 sort of level, mm. they often are quite aware of what the issues that they have are, and they can recognize when they're flaring, when they're not, when mm. they're well, when they're mm. not. So I think for a substantial number of patients, that is possible. But it can only happen with regular follow-up. Okay. Because these diseases are nuanced. Okay. Small things can predict bigger complications. Mm. And that's where follow-up becomes important. Okay. This is this is important. I mean, I'm thinking back to my granny who used to every so often say, I'm going to the doctor for a check-up. Um, <laughs> and I think that's what's kind of ringing in my, in my head at the moment. The importance of those follow ups that check up with the doctor, just so that this can be managed again to ensure that one has a certain quality of life. You know, the, the big barrier to entry for all patients, aside from finance, is often access. Mm. Patients in rural areas, their access to people might be difficult. And I think that. What we as a fraternity and through industry are trying to do is to put the message out there that there is assistance available. I think remote and electronic uh, driven care will become a reality sooner rather than later. Mm. And it's also about what information is out there that is of good quality. Mm. Dr. Google in isolation is actually very anxiety-provoking for patients. But Dr. Google, in consultation with a a consultation with a gastroenterologist, can be empowering Mm. because you get targeted towards good quality information, better quality information, Mm. and that's important. Okay, so we're not dismissing Dr. Google altogether, but no, I think we're saying in conjunction in with... In the real world, Dr. Google is there. <laughs> yeah, no, in the real world, and Dr. Google is there, and I'm guilty. Um, we all are. In fact, Dr. Google is, is typically my first point of contact. Um, and then after that, I think I follow on with, uh, you know, a physical doctor, an actual doctor. And, and in a sense, we mustn't deride Google mm. or other search engine based mm. because it gives patients awareness mm. to go for consultation. And often that very first interaction, be it to the general practitioner or to a gastroenterologist, is ultimately what sets a patient up on a pathway to accessing care. Mm. Mm. I think, Doctor, for me, uh, you know, what's important is, 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 is what you spoke to earlier, which is Dr. Google working alongside, um, a qualified expert, um, you know, who can then assist us to, to, to move in the right direction. I think many of us are guilty of, uh, kind of getting the information on Dr. Google and then following with the recommendations that come from there as well without involving, um, a second or a third opinion. 
Um, and so, and so I think for me, uh, the critical thing is to say, please absolutely use Dr. Google, but in conjunction with a healthcare professional, um, who can assist to really give you the correct uh, diagnosis and, and, and the necessary, uh, next steps. I want to start moving towards a close. Uh, in the conversation, Doctor, and maybe, um, I mean, I think this has been very informative, certainly for myself, this has been informative, so thank you for that. But as we close it off, you know, thinking of like, like you know, parting words, as somebody says, I'm sitting at home, uh, I've listened to the podcast, and certainly for me, I do present with some of these symptoms. I also have been dealing with kind of a very, it's, it's caused me to feel very psychologically, um, I'm in a bad place psychologically. Um, what would you say to, to that person? Knowledge is power. And that's why I cannot stress the importance of accessing primary care mm. so that you are screened to see are the concerns just psychological concerns? And we live in a stressful environment. Mm. COVID has made that more stressful. Access to practitioners for the last two years has been exceptionally difficult. Whenever there's a COVID wave, we close our rooms. We can't offer patients procedures. Mm. And then I think it's about patients just understand contextualizing information mm. and seeking advice from qualified mm. people so that they can be put onto a path. And the other thing is, and, and maybe we should, can speak about this another time, is that colonoscopy, everyone thinks of this as this big, bad, ugly procedure the average colonoscopy is shorter than it takes for you and me to go to the hairdresser. <laughs> so I think that these are some of the issues that going forward, we need to take the fear away of people. Yeah. We can't have patients having or people having ostrich syndrome. You can't bury your head in the sand and hope for the best. Mm. And I think that's difficult for people. Mm. And we have to confront the fears and the expectations mm. and manage both the fears and expectations adequately. Okay. I mean, Doctor, I think this has been fruitful. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the, um, the knowledge and the insights that you have shared. I'm certainly sitting in a more empowered place. And I think for me, um, you know, as we wrap it up, knowledge, knowledge is power. So really, you know, get, get the information, read up on this. And then certainly, um, as the doctor has, has advised, go to your doctor. Uh, go to your doctor if you present with any of the symptoms that we've spoken to. And then, of course, um, you know, uh, follow that up with consistency and, and a commitment to improved uh, quality of life for yourself. Uh, doctor, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And, and um, I look forward to, to more conversations where we really continue to unpack what I think is, is, is a topic of relevance to many more people than what I think we, we assume or we know. Thank you very much, Soya. It's been a real privilege being on the show and I hope we can continue in the near future. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Hashtag Faring Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube under Faring South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Faring IBD Health Diary app today. The Faring IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.